Hello, my name is Tom Dunn. I run Orbion, a technology-based finance company, which normally means I'm traveling across the world to any one of the 53 countries in which the company does business. COVID-19 has dramatically altered this world and the way we are working. In this series of podcasts, I will be joined by guests who share their expert and insightful perspectives on the pandemic's impact on a wide range of subjects, including business, people, economies, the environment, technologies, finance, and sport. For today's piece, I have the great pleasure to be joined in London by the popular young urbanscape designer and writer, Felix de Grey. The focus today will turn to COVID-19 and cities. In particular, how might we start to think about the relationships between the global pandemic and our urban environment? Felix, it's a real pleasure to have you here today. Um, Let's start with some history. Um, pandemics and cities have a long association, um, whether in literature, in history, kind of uh, and around the world. Do you want to just talk us a little yeah, bit about that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's helpful to think of the context of why cities emerged in the first place. So going back to prehistory and 4000 BC in Asia Minor, people were using cities as a strategy to basically mitigate against environmental difficulties, um, they're a defense strategy, the idea that grouping together would help defeat common enemies. Uh, they were useful as trade routes and sort of centers of religious experience and belief. So, so that's really why cities came to emerge, or a number of the reasons that cities came to emerge. And actually, the precursor to most cities all over is agriculture. There are very few cities that emerge without agriculture. Because once you have agriculture, you're able to produce food in higher densities, you're able to support more people. Um, but also, this connection with agriculture means that there's an increased chance of animal to human transmission. Mm -hmm. So really, the history of cities is the history of cities. Once people are sedentary, you begin to see emergent elites controlling the means of production, mm -hmm. distribution, through taxation. Uh, you also see craftsmen producing material goods for the first time. And this stratification or the inception of inequality is really important to the story of disease in cities because it creates a degree of social mobility. And the social mobility in turn creates a dynamic between the city and the rural hinterland mm -hmm. that is still hugely influential today. So we see for the first time rural migrants moving to cities in order to try and make something of themselves. Yep. Um, however, prior to the advent of uh, widespread immunity and modern medicine, Cities were primarily good for economic opportunity, but also very good at, at killing their populace. Yeah. So you had kind of the quotidian diseases like measles, smallpox, and mumps. And then you also had the more newsworthy, perhaps catastrophic epidemics. And yet, in spite of all these dangers, people still sought to move to cities because of the economic and social opportunities. So really, between the inception of the first cities in, in 4000 BC and the sort of middle of the 18th century, Populations didn't change an awful lot, and generally, uh, if you look at, say, ancient Rome, which had around 450,000 people, uh, these numbers don't change an awful lot over time. Uh, as late as 1700, there were still fewer than 40 cities with more than 100,000 inhabitants. So that really gives you an idea of the scale of yep. general cities across Europe and the world. Uh, and the total population of Europe was only slightly higher than that in ancient times. And, and an example of this is really is 
London in the 18th century, it required 6,000 rural migrants a year just to maintain this population of 600,000 people. So there was this quite clear mortality penalty. Uh, and in 1790 in London, you see the first time that there are more recorded baptisms than there are funerals. Mm -hmm. So that gives an indication of really how many rural migrants are coming to cities to sustain just an average population. And this is still something that we're seeing, seeing today very much so. Because of cities' positions as uh, major hubs for trade, you think of ports of the New World and Silk Road, uh, the world was beginning to get smaller and cities played a crucial part in this. And as a result of that uh, contracting world, you start to see the first um, uh, population booms resulting from widespread immunity. That's very interesting because it's this, this notion of globalization creating kind of greater hubs of specialization, I guess, which I'm suspecting then reinforce the senses of um, uh, adva advantage from clusters forming, but that then started to then ferment, I guess, greater concerns around both disease and maybe also around political considerations and social considerations as people were getting forced into ever closer um, agglomeration. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you think of Paris in, in the middle of the 18th century, the rural to urban migration that happened is one of the direct causes of the, uh, the French Revolution. But I guess what one of the things that comes clear from this is that the, you know, right now as we're, as, as we're looking at the policy making that's going on around COVID-19 is that there's this sort of constant trade-off between you know, health and wealth. This idea of, you know, do you lock down quicker? Do you, do you, do you, do you but take greater economic consequences? But in many respects, what you're saying is that from... For people that have been migrating to cities since 4000 BC, this has been a trade-off that people have been thinking about for millennia. Um, is that a fair observation? And what? And then how does that kind of then now play out into a 21st century world mm. around uh, around these considerations? I think it's a fair observation. Certainly, people tend to not be dissuaded by you know history has shown that people are not dissuaded by the threat of disease. Um, they are, they are looking exclusively for economic and social advancement. Um, and if you think about today's slums, they're no different. So we see a lot of informal settlements in the developing world where regardless really of the conditions of those slums that they enter, uh, people are still willing to travel far and wide for not just their benefit, but for the benefit of their children, yeah. their children's children. Um, and this is why... In many respects, slums are signs of a successful city. They show that that city is economically strong enough that people will move there regardless of the potentially unpleasant living conditions, the social conditions, the crime that they might encounter when they first arrive. Um, so that's certainly, certainly true, yes, yes. If we turn to the COVID-19 pandemic that we've got at the moment, anything yet in regard to the fact that a lot of the policy making is being dictated by metropolitan central governments that are making decisions often based on their own experiences rather than that of suburban or rural communities is this do you think do you see this playing out at all in terms of consequences yeah i think there's certainly a, a sense that decentralization is is a critical factor when it comes to thinking about public health because really cities are only as strong as their, their weakest communities. So rather than taking the scale of the problem at the national, uh, if, you, if you 
zoom in on the cities, you can start to target those areas that you suspect might be uh, the, the hotbeds of disease and epidemics. So, I mean, certainly we can look at something like the comparison between, say, uh, New York and Singapore. Both are incredibly dense cities. New York's had an awful time, but Singapore seems to have dealt with the problem a little better. So we're seeing there that density per se is not necessarily the problem, but how governments manage density is integral, really. And, and the, the success of those uh, policies really do come from an intimate understanding of one city and where, where the problems may arise. That's very interesting. Can we talk a little bit more about the that distinction between Singapore and New York? Because mm-hmm. that is, I mean, that's, you know, one is a, a city that's grown up over the course of 300 years, um, you know, bit by bit, block by block. Mm-hmm. And the other one feels like far more of a planned, directed um, environment. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a, a bit more about kind of how that might now play out in terms of the way that people like yourself and other city designers start to think about the world for a post-pandemic world? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the the sort of logical um, conclusion that one jumps to really is that we have to reduce density. And I think uh, Cuomo of New York was pretty early in saying that. But this isn't necessarily the case. If you look at somewhere like uh, Dharavi, which is a slum in Mumbai, there's about a million people in 2.5 square kilometers. They, uh, the last weekend, so June 13th, were having, having contracted the first case of coronavirus in May, I think, they had zero deaths on, on June 13th and have consistently maintained a relatively low level of mortality. Even, sorry, incredibly impoverished areas with hugely dense. Uh, populations and inability to social distance or uh, with no access to clean running water, they are able to tackle this problem in to some degree. And that comes down in part to local governance. So in Dharavi, the slum, there's been uh, very rigorous testing. But also we think about public infrastructure. A lot of um, urbanists would say that in in London, certainly, that the, the, the pandemic has increase the public's appreciation of public spaces because we've spent a lot of time in parks, we've spent a lot of time in uh, squares where you're able to practice social distancing. And there's a sense that this groundswell could be the uh, driver for a number of beneficial changes that we see in cities across the world. So if you take uh, Paris, for example, they're pioneering what's called the 15-minute city. This came around before, uh, before the pandemic, certainly. But the idea is that you have polycentric cities where people can uh, walk or cycle to every amenity and to their job within 15 minutes. So everything you need is within 15 minutes walk, and this is uh, all cycle. And this is an idea that has, uh, you know, it clearly encourages people into uh, less into the centre and more into the sort of neighbourhoods. I suppose. Yep. Um, there's also uh, a lot of efforts being made to improve, uh, say, the width of pavements, which sounds like a fairly uh, mundane aspect of city planning, but is actually really effective in helping flows of human traffic between uh, two meter distances. Um, so we're going to see, I think, probably an uptick in, in, in interventions like this that are relatively small scale, but also we have to think about the social infrastructure, so the places where 
exchange can flourish even in a sort of post-social distancing world. And that's that's slightly more difficult part of thinking really public health as a spatial issue. So in London, for example, local authorities, the NHS, the voluntary sector have all been coming together to help people in this time of pandemic. And in 2016, the WHO was quite specific about this. They said that health is created in the neighbourhoods and communities where people live, work, shop and play. Yeah. So really there is a sense that the local agenda is going to be boosted by the efforts of, of organisations who are seeing that people's choices are affected. So, so alongside some of the grand projets that get talked about, the big infrastructure pieces of HS2 or whatever it might be, actually to have infrastructure going in at a very local level around community-type facilities, and, and something that you would suggest will be a viable way forward to address some of the issues that have come up. That's uh... Absolutely, yeah. I think they are more and more being seen as integral of t- uh, to tackling health and wellness as a whole yep. for those communities. So there's a school of thought that talks about social infrastructure. These are really places where people are able to gather, to exchange information, uh, things like libraries, for example, where budgets have been slashed radically over the last 10 years. Uh, all these places contribute to a healthy local community and in turn that drives resilience in those communities. Health as broadly defined, it's yeah. not just a healthy thriving community, it's a healthy in terms of its 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 actual immunity and its bodily functions. Exactly. So let's just finally just turn, I know that one thing that you've written about in the past and that's been quite a, um, uh, a popular uh, suggestion over recent years has been this idea of kind of you know, bringing together more multi-generational uh, accommodation or living spaces where you know, the, the, and it being used as a path to address concerns about youth disengagement as well as issues around aged care and loneliness and issues like that. The pandemic is going to force us to rethink some of those considerations isn't it? a little bit on the basis that this is a disease, the pandemic is a, is a disease that, or a virus that affects the elderly disproportionately to the young, but the young can be vectors mm-hmm. for transmission. And so we need to think about that. Absolutely, yeah. There has been a growing corpus of uh, theory about intergenerational living. And it's certainly an area that is dynamic and exciting because in part it attracts younger people with the promise of lower rents. As I mentioned before, I think we shouldn't really give up on that dream because of the pandemic. There are certain aspects of management and uh, policy that can help us prevent the transmission of disease. And we know we've been seeing it all over the world with, with social distancing and the like. So yes, that is going to be a problem in the in the near near term future. But I suspect that there might be that the fundamental problems of young people not being able to afford houses in cities is far less likely to be solved in the next two years than Felix, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to, uh, to, to, to chat to you this morning. Thank you for having me.